So let's pray and we'll jump in here again. Lord, thank you for another session. Help us to learn and grow and apply what you have us to know. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalm chapter 19. All right, that was, the last lesson was introduction, the mission. And the second one's really about the manual. Because everything we do is about the Bible, right? It's about the Word of God. And in the past, um, Muslims have been known to call Christians, quote, people of the book. That's how maybe in days of old they referred to Christians. Oh, those are the people of the book. That, that's what we're supposed to be about, right? We're supposed to be the people of the book. Psalm 19, 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Now, if you took anything from those verses, and they're familiar verses, the book should mean everything to us. It is the manual for the mission. Right? The book, this book, this King James Bible, is the manual for the mission. Look at 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1. Are all the binders out of there? Is everything out of there? Yeah. All right. Did they leave you a binder, Christian? Or they took it? They left you one? All right, good. They didn't leave you one? Yeah, you don't have a binder? All right, you want to give him one? Follow along? You say you're giving preferential treatment to your son. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm all in favor of it. First Peter 1. Not that he needs other reason to think he's my favorite, you know, because that's, that's a running joke in the house. But that's, that's another thing. First Peter 1, 23. Just because you had cancer doesn't mean I love you any more differently. First Peter 1, 23. Um, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Not only is the book the manual for the mission, it's the seed God gave us that brings forth the trees that bear fruit and multiply. Like, this is the seed. Like, we can't do anything, right? We said Luke eight eleven, the seed is the word of God. The seed of God's word is the genesis of all life. The seed is the genesis. The word of God is the genesis. Unfortunately, we live in a culture where the Bible says no longer has much clout. Probably 50 years ago, lost people were more righteous than many saved people. (laughs) And 50 years ago, if you said the Bible says you might get somebody to at least stop and listen, maybe not get converted, but at least listen and be some respect. Now the Bible says really is met with mockery, scorn, and cancel culture. So in a lost world that's been brainwashed into believing this is just another book, I'd like to start with why we believe the Bible. And uh, this is an acronym I learned from somebody else that I'm going to share with you. When someone gets in your face about the Bible, you're going to remember the acronym Faces, right? And we'll break that down. Um, How that simple acronym, Faces, will help you. Next time somebody gets in your face about why the Bible is not true, and if you get a chance to talk to them, if it's at an Exxon station and they're yelling out of their car, it's not really a cause for a conversation. But uh, if it's actually a conversation where someone's open to it, maybe you can give them faces. So we're going to break. There are five. They're not... They're not why the Bible's true. They're just confirmations of the authenticity of the Bible, just to the trustworthiness of the Bible. So go to Isaiah 46, and you'll see a lot of these guided notes are about these things. We'll fill in some blanks together. 
And this is not an exhaustive study. This is just a sampler. Again, if this was an institute class, you might spend several months on this. We're going to spend like a lesson on this, and then we're going to spend a few classes on why the King James Bible. First, why the Bible, then why the King James Bible, all right? So this is a little bit more of an apologetic, I guess, if you want to be fancy with your words. Um, But Isaiah 46, the first first testimony of the Bible's divine authorship is fulfilled prophecy. That's the first, I mean, that's the one that God himself points to. Fulfilled prophecy. In Isaiah 46, God is comparing himself to many of the false gods of uh, Israel's day and Judah's day. And look what he says. You notice in verse 1, he's talking about Bel bowing down and Nebo stooping. These are all their false gods that they were worshiping. And in verse number 9, he says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. And what makes God so special? Here it is in verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. God's ability to foretell the future is what separates this book from all others. You see on your handout? There are no fulfilled prophecies in the Quran. Zero. The Hindu Vedas, the Book of Mormon, there are no fulfilled prophecies in those books. But there are more than 300 fulfilled prophecies in Jesus' life at his first coming. More than 300 at his first coming. And if you flip in your book, just so you don't have to go crazy, I put, you know, I put some of the big ones. Uh, you have them at your disposal now. You have a handout that says uh, fulfilled prophecies about his life, prophecies about his death and resurrection. Again, this is just a sampler, but so you have some at your disposal, some of these prophecies that we may refer to. The probability... Of just eight, all right, so I gave you what I give you. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. I gave you 16. But, and there's more than 300. So let's just take eight. A mathematician said the probability of just eight of these prophecies coming true is one in a hundred quadrillion. That's a 10 with 17 zeros after it. Just take that in. Deborah, you're a bookkeeper. Just take that number in, all right? Congress doesn't. Take that in. That's as likely as covering Texas, four feet high in silver dollars, marking one of those silver dollars, stirring them all up, and asking someone to pick it out on the first try. That's how probable it is that the Bible, you know, was written by man, and those prophecies are not divine, right? One, only eight of them didn't get to 16 or 48. Eight of them, one in 10 to the 17th power, one in 100 quadrillion. Now, I know what the skeptic says. The skeptic says, you might be saying it now in your head. I know we're human, it happens. Couldn't the early disciples have taken these prophecies and just created a story about Jesus Christ that fit what they said was going to happen? Right? My answer to that is this. Do you know how the early disciples died? If you don't know how they died, I put a handout. After the prophecies is a handout of all the deaths of those 12, right? Those disciples. Beheaded slain with an axe, dragged through the streets, hung, tortured, crucified upside down, bound to a cross, run through the body with spears, hung up against a pillar, flayed alive, Nathaniel, thrown from the pinnacle of the temple, stoned, stoned, and beheaded as the apostle Paul was beheaded. You say, why is that a big deal? Would they die like that for what they knew was a lie? You say, well, religious, religious people die for their faith all the time. Yes, but they believe it's true. 
When that suicide bomber straps that C4 to himself and runs into a, into a mall and yells what he yells, you know what he yells. When they yell, God is great in their language and they try to take everybody's life, they think they're greeted by all these virgins in some paradise. They really believe that. But you're saying that these guys, Peter and James and John, were allowed themselves to face torture of the most fiercest magnitude for what they knew was a fabrication? Sorry, can't buy that bridge. Not buying it. I don't like pain any more than you do. We do everything to avoid pain, right? I'm not letting you, st- I'm not letting you flay my skin alive. Take hot pliers and pull the skin off my flesh off my bones? For what I know is a fairy tale? Uh-uh, not happening. And it ain't happening with you either. So that thought about, well, could they have just been making it up is absurd if you know anything about how the disciples actually died. They would not have died for what they knew was a lie, given the fierce, horrific deaths they faced if it was all just a big story that they invented. No, the fulfilled prophecies are there. Number two, let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1. And when I share some of these things, hopefully it'll be enlightening and just a reminder that, wow, you know, this Bible really is the Word of God. It really is like God wrote the Bible. I know I say it as like a joke, but it's not a joke. It's me just being a little bit sarcastic because, like, we have the words of God. Like, God's words. Muslims don't. Mormons don't. The Hindus don't. And it doesn't make us feel better than them. We're supposed to reach out to them in love and be compassionate towards them. But that's all trash. It's all lies. Uh, 2 Peter 1.16 Peter says, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. He says, this isn't a story, guys. This isn't just made up. So the next reason to trust the Bible is all the archaeological evidence we find. I'm spelling it here slowly, too, because I don't know how to spell it either. Archaeological, I don't know why I made my L capital. Please don't imitate me. The archaeological evidence, when they dig in the dirt, so many archaeological discoveries continue to confirm the Bible. I'll give you some to just kind of float your boat. Until 1993, some of us were alive in 1993, until 1993, the figure of David was considered by scholars to be a mythical figure. Skeptics mocked. But in 1993, a 3,000-year-old inscription was found in Israel mentioning David, the king of Israel. See, the Bible just comes true every time. Pontius Pilate, perhaps you've heard of him. Pontius Pilate was sentenced Jesus to death, but he was not a legendary figure. There wasn't a lot of stuff on him. But in 1961, Italian, amen, Italian archaeologist digging in Caesarea. They must have been looking for the sauce or something like that. But they're digging in Caesarea. They find a limestone block dating to the first century that read in Latin, the language of the Roman Empire, quote, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. Once again, the Bible took almost 2,000 years, but the Bible... Proved itself true every time. Now, I don't expect you to have this at your disposal when you're contending with that guy at Exxon, right? You know, did you know in 1993 they found another thing? Right? But this is for you, you know, and you can go back and listen to the recordings. I'll share them with you after today. And you can kind of put these in your Bible. You know, you just need to know. Sometimes apologetics is more for you than the skeptic. It's kind of confirm your faith. I remember my early days of Christianity, I watched a lot of Kent Hovind, who's since become a whack job, but I used to watch a lot of his old stuff about dinosaurs and, you know, and, and creation. It was great stuff. I met him twice. I saw him in Long Island. We, so we took the youth group out to see him one time in Pennsylvania, and he was a great guy. He's since lost his mind a little bit. I don't judge him, but he's a little out there, doctrinally speaking now. But uh, I really enjoyed that stuff in the beginning, like you know, realizing that there's reasons for your faith. That's good. We, we can get obsessed with that where it becomes all intellectual, but there's some need for that to kind of just strengthen your sea legs and know that I've not followed cunningly devised fables because you're swimming in a world that makes you think you're nuts, but they're nuts. They're the one that's nuts. Amen. 
They think something came from nothing. That's, that's nuts. There is nothing illogical about believing that an almighty God created everything. There's nothing illogical about that. The reason why people have a problem with that is because of their hard attitude. Because they have a philosophical conjecture, a philosophical bias against a holy God that is greater than them. Because deep down, what did the devil tell us? Ye shall be as gods. And this Adamic nature wants to be God. So anytime we're reminded there's a God higher than us, something in us just kicks against those pricks and doesn't want to admit that there is a God that is higher than us, holier than us, more righteous than us, stronger than us. We don't like that. Even now you don't like hearing that. Your flesh hates hearing this. Because Psalm 12 says that the wicked want to say, our lips are our own. Who hath dominion over us? That's the Adamic nature. So don't be ashamed to, to profess creation, to profess the Bible. There's nothing illogical about it. Oh, you believe in the flying spaghetti monster. You believe in a primordial soup. You believe that nothing created everything. It rained on the rocks, and then nothing moved the soup around. Lightning that came from nowhere with energy that came from nothing shot the rocks, and then there was life, and here we are today with intricate design and finely tuned universes. You're the one that's smoking the reefer, not me. I have, I have a logical deduction that information only comes from information that has been shown everywhere. So I have a finely tuned universe. I have DNA codes in my, bo- in my body that are just the evidence and the offspring of an intelligence passing on that information. There's, we are the logical ones. That's why God said, come now and let us reason together. There's nothing illogical about following God. I don't know why I'm getting on this, but it's important to remember this. Right? God didn't tell you to turn your brains off. Look at Psalm 22. And every time they dig around in the dirt, the Bible proves and confirms what's in there. You ain't doing that with the Book of Mormon. You ain't doing that with the Book of Mormon. Psalm 22. Good Psalm 22 and John 20 in the other hand. There's a lot of Mormons out there. They're nice people. They profess to have nice families. Their founder was a treasure hunter who got shot in a jail because he was sleeping with too many men's wives. And they hold him up like he's a martyr. They sing about him. And they put him above Jesus Christ at the judgment. Joseph Smith sits at the judgment above Jesus Christ in the Mormon theology. Do you know how he translated the Book of Mormon? He found these plates that nobody knew in upstate New York. He put them in a hat. And no one else was allowed to see the plates. He'd put his head in the hat, get the next word that came from Reformed Egyptian, which is a language scholars say never existed. He'd come out and he'd say, it's written in Reformed Egyptian, only I could see it. He'd re-look in the hat with these special glasses on or whatever he had. He'd look at it, he'd tell him the next word, and when he finished translating it, the plates, uh, the plates uh, luckily evaporated. And they're going to get up there and say, you know, we're the religion, we're the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're the church. You guys are all in apostasy, and God can use Joseph Smith to restore the church to its rightful... What? <laughs> I don't think so. Muhammad was an epileptic, demon-possessed, lunatic, spewing like a camel, you know, consummated, had an eight-year-old wife, saw this 600-winged angel or something like that, said it was Gabriel that gave him the Quran. You ever read the Quran? I have. It's rough. It's rough. This is logical. This has got sales of land. This has got genealogies. Read your Bible. It doesn't read like a religious book. It doesn't read like the Vedas of Hinduism or the weird stuff of the Baha'i Christians. It's a very logical book. This guy begat that guy, and this went out and did this. We just have a bias against the supernatural, so we don't want to think that a supernatural being injected himself into the affairs of men, but there's nothing illogical about it. It's perfectly logical, this Bible. makes a lot of sense if you just take that veil off your heart. Psalm 22, verse 16. I have no idea why I'm getting on this at all. Thanks, thanks, man. Thank you. I could for about a week. Psalm 22, 16. He says, Dog, David writes, Dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Right? That's David in the spirit talking about being crucified. David never got his feet or hands pierced. Right? Go to John 20. You're in there. John 20. Right? Verse 25. It says right there, um, 
Thomas says, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. You know, for years, critics said crucifixions never took place in the first century in Israel. For years, critics said crucifixion never took place in the first century in Israel. Until 1968. And in 1968, some builders from the Israeli Ministry of Housing found an ossuary. That's like a big box where they leave the bones of a dead person. They found the ossuary of a man killed during the Jewish revolt of 70 AD. He had been put to death by crucifixion. How do they know? The iron nail was still stuck in his bones. A Bible comes true every single time. You're not going to beat it. Even if you want to pretend it's not the word of God, it is the word of God. Though heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. How about number three? Another amazing testimony to the trustworthiness of the Bible is its internal consistency. It's internal consistency. It's internal consistency. What would happen if I asked you all to write about the events of tomorrow? What do we got? 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18. 18 or 19 people here, right? 20 including myself. If we took 20 people and said, just predict everything that's going to happen tomorrow, would we have harmony? Did we line up? Maybe in some spots. You know, the Bible is a collection of 66 books. You think about, you realize the genius and the wisdom of God to do that? It's not a single document that you could fake harmony with. It's 66 different books that harmonize. That's God leaving you a testimony that the internal consistency shows how much a divine hand was over all of it. The Bible has, and I know you need these for your notes, so I'll say them slowly. The Bible has about 40 different authors, you know, give or take, about 40, depending on how you count them. People have some disagreement, but we'll say about 40 different authors, unlike the Quran, composed by Muhammad alone, unlike the Book of Mormon, supposedly translated by Joseph Smith alone with nobody else allowed to see it, okay? These authors came from different backgrounds. Different backgrounds. Peter was a fisherman. Paul was a Pharisee. Asaph was a musician. David was a shepherd then a king. We're not talking about the same people. We're not talking about you know, law students sitting in a room together. We're talking about unlearned fishermen, religious zealots, uh, you know, uh, gathers of sycamore fruit. We're talking about all different people from all different walks of life. The Bible's written over a span of about 1,500 years, a little more than that. Roughly 1446 B.C. to 95 A.D. 1446 B.C. to 95 A.D. is about the span of when your Bible is being written down. That means those people didn't know each other. Daniel didn't know John. Isaiah didn't know Moses. Asaph didn't know uh, Peter. The Bible's written in three different languages. Old Testament is mostly Hebrew. New Testament is Greek. And there is some Aramaic in the Old Testament, parts of Daniel has some Aramaic in it, some other spots too. So three different languages. And the Bible addresses life's most pressing and controversial questions. If I asked 20 people to say what's going to happen tomorrow, we'd, have, we'd be okay. Well, I'm going to wake up. We're going to go to church, right? Um, and we're going to, uh, uh, maybe someone's going to go to the fair. I might go to a funeral, you know, wake for Jimmy Murphy. Like we'd be able to be okay on some things, but... These guys are writing about the most controversial questions of the human condition. Where did I come from? Where did the universe come from? Is there really a God? Hey, if you ask that question in a room of 50 people or 40 people, you get a lot of answers today. Why am I here? What is the purpose for life? Why is there evil and suffering in the world? Where am I going when I die? Those are the things the Bible wrestles with, and there's harmony given all these variables. 
That's amazing consistency. There had to be a mind and a hand over these things to be guiding it. It wouldn't be so. Look at Luke 24. Luke 24, 27. Luke 24, 27. We're making sense? Amen. All right. That's some book you got there. Luke 24, 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All these languages, all these people, all these questions, all this time, and yet they all harmonize to present one main subject, Jesus Christ. He is, look at Hebrews chapter 10. He is what the Bible is all about. He is the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7. This is the Spirit of Christ quoting Psalm 40, right? This is uh, the Spirit of Christ speaking here. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. The whole book is consistent because the whole book points you to one person, Jesus Christ. That's amazing. That's amazing. You can't get five people to agree on what they saw. They could have watched the same car accident, the same bank robbery, and you kind of interview people. They all see different things. Was the guy wearing a yellow coat or a blue coat? Did he have red hair? Did he have brown hair? Like People don't always see what they think they saw, and they disagree all the time. Only God can inspire the Bible and guide us to one picture of one Savior, Jesus Christ, like this. All right, let's go to the next one. Not only are the fulfilled prophecies, archaeological evidence, and I would probably stop right here. I mean, if, if somebody can't look at the prophecies of the Bible and be honest enough to admit that's divine, I may not waste my time going down the list, but it's good for you to know. But um, there are plenty of extra-biblical writings that confirm the Bible. Extra-biblical, meaning outside the Bible. There are plenty of extra-biblical writings that bear witness to what the Bible says. Guys, if we walked into an English class and I talked about Homer, right? The Odyssey is one of the oldest pieces of poetry written in, our, in, in the world today. Nobody would debate Homer's existence. But there's not a lot of documents on Homer. There's not a lot of documents on Aristotle, and nobody would, do, would argue that Aristotle existed or that Socrates exist, existed. But there's very little written about them outside of their own writings. But there are a lot of writings outside the Bible that talk about what the Bible talks about. You know what that is? That's a multitude of counselors. That's another evidence of the trustworthiness of the Bible. There are dozens of documents that survive outside the Bible and verify what's inside the Bible. How about some persons? There are 50 people mentioned in the Old Testament that are mentioned in extra-biblical writings. 50 people. That's a lot of characters. There are 30 people mentioned in the New Testament that are mentioned in extra-biblical writings, right? 50 in the Old Testament, 30 in the New Testament. These are not mythological characters we're dealing with. These are real people that walked and lived and bled and died and did all the things that you do. They're real people. The Jewish historian. How about some events? For example, we could go on and on about this, but I'll give you one. Babylonian records confirm a siege of Judah in 597 B.C. That's talked about in 2 Kings 24. 2 Kings 24 talks about Babylon attacking Judah, and the Babylonian records confirm that it happened. Right? We're not, it's not made up. The Jewish historian, if you do any kind of apologetics, you've, known, you've heard this name, Flavius Josephus, sometimes just known as Josephus. He confirms the death of John the Baptist. This is an unsaved, unbelieving Jewish historian, and he writes about the death of John the Baptist in the first century, and I quote, John, that was called the Baptist, was a good man and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God, and so to come to baptism. 
Herod, who feared the great influence John had over the people, sent John a prisoner out of Herod's suspicious temper to Machaerus, the castle I before mentioned, and was there put to death. That's from his Antiquities, book 18, verses 116 to 119. Right? Listen to Josephus' statement about Jesus Christ. This is an unsaved, unbelieving Jewish historian writing about your Savior. Quote, At this time there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Right? That's from Antiquities, Book 18, 63 to 64, from a surviving manuscript in Arabic. That's not like, and you must believe on him that your life might be better and you know the mystical God. No, that's just a guy saying, yeah, there's a guy talking about Jesus. He was a good man. They say he's still alive. It's a matter of fact. It's reporting. You know, I didn't read it, but I want to read it now, right? This little quote at the bottom of this handout about the deaths of the disciples is a great thing. <clears throat> it was by Charles Colson. He was a special counsel to Nixon, and he was involved in Watergate. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured it if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. (laughs) So, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. There are more than 30 sources outside of the Bible. 30 sources outside of the Bible written within 150 years of Jesus' life that attest to more than 100 facts regarding his life, his teachings, his crucifixion, his resurrection. I'll say that again. 30 sources outside of the Bible within 150 years, which means it's pretty close to ground zero, that attest to more than 100 facts about his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. That's amazing. There's more on Jesus than George Washington. You get that, right? There's more to attest to the life of Jesus Christ than George Washington and Socrates. But nobody debates the existence of George Washington or Socrates, but we want to somehow pretend that there's a flying spaghetti monster that we've all just been duped into believing. Don't get hung up on those atheists and stuff. They are sad people. They're sad people. Some of those names, Tacitus. T-A-C-I-T-U-S. Tacitus was a Roman historian in the first century that wrote about Jesus Christ. Suetonius. S-U-E-T-O-N-I-U-S. He was a secretary of the emperor who wrote about Jesus Christ right after the first century. Even the Jewish Talmud, which are the gatherings of the rabbinical writings and opinions, And the Sanhedrin writes, quote, on the eve of the Passover, Yeshua the Nazarene was hanged. So it's out there. John 17, 17. Let's finish this point with John 17, 17. John 17, 17. Hopefully you can say a better amen to this now. Jesus says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And Jesus said, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Right? We're not wondering, what did God say? Is this really? No, you've got to settle in your heart that this word is the word of God. And once you get that settled in your heart, It's liberating because now you have an authority to which you can be subject in all matters of faith and practice, and you're free now. You see, the people that are skeptics are the ones in bondage. 
They're in bondage to their own ideas. They're in bondage to their fears. They're in bondage to the philosophies of the world. They're in bondage to just all types of things. And yet claiming you are the ones in bondage. No, you're free. You're free indeed. Because now you know like which way the sun sets. You understand how things work. Finally, last point on here. That'll be our last point for the day. The Bible demonstrates amazing scientific accuracy and insight. That's where we get our faces. Fulfilled prophecy, archaeological evidence, internal consistency, extra-biblical writings, scientific accuracy, and insight. The Bible is not a science book, but when it touches on science, it's always correct. Before microscopes and telescopes, the Word of God is accurate when touching on scientific matters and phenomena. Unlike so-called other religious writings. I'm going to mock them a little bit now. I have biblical precedent. God mocked them. Elijah mocked them. I'm not mocking them to make you heady or high-minded and walk out of here and go, oh, you're Catholic, <laughs> you're Hindu. No, we have these Indian folks walking around us every week. We are trying to minister to them and be a good testimony to them, right? One of them got a track the other day. Some of them are sitting there outside the service and listening to what's going on. So as much as I don't want them here, because it drives me crazy to be sharing the building with someone, hey, it's a mission field, right? So the Hindu Vedas teach the earth is flat. Some of you are like, yeah, okay, keep that to yourself, right? right? Keep puffing the magic dragon. The Hindu Vedas teach the earth is flat, and earthquakes, get it around, lean in close, are caused by guardian elephants shaking their bodies beneath the ground. I know, me too. You just got to get it. We just, we're going to get a shovel out there, just go digging, and you're going to see them, you know, shake, shake, shake the Mona. Right? That's gonna, I'm going to see the elephants just shaking their bodies, you know, shaking their bodies right, you know. And uh, that's what an earthquake is. You didn't know that. You thought it was tectonic plates, you know, fault lines and all this stuff. No, it's really just, you know, come on, baby. You know, it's just, it's just the uh, elephants doing the twist, right? Shaking what their mama gave them, right? Um, the Quran, good shot if I say this, uh, in Surah 1886, right, those are the chapters, they're called surahs, and they're done from the longest to shortest. So the beginning, the early chapters of the Quran are really long, the last ones are really short. Uh, so if you read it end to front, you could read it faster, I guess. But um, Quran, Surah 1886, says the sun sets in a muddy spring. Look it up yourself. The sun sets in a muddy spring. You thought it was out there in the, you know, just, there's a puddle somewhere and just the sun sets in a muddy spring. Right? 1 Timothy 6.20. Let's turn there. That should disqualify anybody from reading it. First Timothy 6.20. The Bible says, O Timothy, keep that which committed to thy trust avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so-called. Science is good. Real science, which is observation, always confirms what the Bible says. Philosophical science, about long ago and far away, when no one could repeat it or observe it or demonstrate it, that's where you get into the funny farms. Things like Big Bangs and nebular hypothesis and all that stuff and steady-state theory, all this stuff about how the universe existed, that's not science. Because it's all based on philosophy and conjecture. Real science, where you could demonstrate it and repeat it in a lab, that always confirms what the Bible says. I mean, where'd the laws come from? Did you go that? Guy walks into a chemistry lab, like our good friend Charlie Jenkins. He does cancer research. He walks into the lab. And how to come that the laws of chemistry and biology on Tuesday are the same laws of chemistry and biology as they are on Wednesday if the universe is just mindless matter and energy in a random chaotic flux. How could there be laws? How can we know what goes up goes down? How can we the laws of conservation of angular momentum, the laws of conservation of energy? How could these laws exist that are things that allow us to perform science experiments, but we, don't, we take for granted the fact that there's a lawmaker that put those laws in place? Amen. There's a chemist that's going to go fiddle around with his test tubes like Stanley Miller 
and Urey, they did the famous Miller-Urey experiment to try to show that they could have life from non-life, which ended up in a disaster, but it's still in the textbooks today. They put all this stuff in a test tube and zapped it, and they got tar and a few amino acids. They said, look, we can create life from non-life like the primordial earth. How did you have the laws to make that happen? You had scientific chemistry laws that you depended on to make that happen that were put there by God Almighty that you knew would be the same Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and all the months you worked on it. How come the laws aren't changing? How can there be laws if there's no lawmaker? Right? Psalm 19.6. Psalm 19.6. Speaking about the sun, says his going forth is from the end of the heaven and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. It's been discovered that the sun actually has an orbit around the galaxy as well. It's slow, but the sun's moving too. Book of Psalms told you that a thousand years before Christ, before a telescope or anybody even knew what was going on. Look at uh, Job 26. I'm just giving you a few samples here, just some things to think about. You, you could spend your whole life studying stuff like this. And you can get overboard with it, too. I mean, there's a lot of good organizations out there that mean well. Answers in Genesis and ICR. And there's a lot of good stuff there. I like some of this stuff. But it's not all that. Can't all be apologetics. That's only for your head. You need things for your heart. Job 26, 10. Bible told us the shape of the earth long before the Greeks figured it out. This is long before the Greeks. This is shortly after the flood Job is writing this. Oh, this is Britain and Job. Job 26, 10. He hath compassed the waters with bounds until the day and night come to an end. Around 2000 BC, the Bible is saying that God put a circular boundary on the earth. Look at Isaiah chapter 40. We'll add to this understanding. He's compassed, right? When you compass something, you go around it. He hath compassed the waters with bounds. Uh, Look at um, Isaiah 40. Verse 22, Isaiah 40, verse 22. Speaking about the Lord, right? I'm speaking about, uh, yeah, the Lord here. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. And the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretch out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. So in 700 BC, the Bible says God sits on the circle of the earth. And I know, I know, I know. It doesn't say sphere, it just says circle. I'm getting there, I'm getting there. I know, I'm getting there, I'm getting there, I'm getting there. All right? All right, go to Luke chapter 17. So there's a circular boundary, the earth is a circle, and then Luke 17. Verse 34. Thirty-four. Jesus is talking about his return, his advent. He said, I tell you in that night, there shall be two men in one bed. I don't know what that's all about. The one shall be taken and the other left. Shall be left. Two women shall be grinding together. The one shall be taken and the other left. Two men shall be in the field. The one shall be taken and the other left. See, why is that important? Well, Jesus Christ right there is making pretty clear the earth is a sphere because you can have day and night at the same time. In some parts of the world, he's going to come back, it's going to be day. In some parts, it's going to be night. That's not happening if we're just a floating disc. Right? Now listen, if you hold to that, I'm not going to fight you on that. <laughs> if you are a flat earther, I'm not going to fight you on that. I think you're wrong, but I'm not going to like, fight you on that. I know all about it. The ice boundary, and uh, I know about the biodome. I've had people in my family. I've looked at all this stuff. If, that's, if you are convinced that we're floating on a biodome, like a little mushroom sitting in the outer space, even though the Bible talks about planets, there's an explanation for everything, I get it, but the Bible talks about planets and stars. If you want to die and go to heaven thinking it's a flat earth, as long as you don't cause a ruckus, I'm not going to bother you with that or describe the ruckus, sir. But anything, but, but I mean, I think the Bible's pretty clear. One, not a big deal what the shape of the earth is, but two, it's a sphere. The Bible's pretty clear, it's a sphere. But the thing I want you to see is that it's talking about this stuff long before we had a telescope to even look out there or an internet to even put our crazy ideas out there. 
It's, 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 it's described. Look at Job 26. Go back to Job. People want, and this is, you know, can I just, give me one just second to get on a hobby horse. When you make more of something than the Bible does, you're always going to end in error. The Bible is not hung up on geocentric, heliocentric, flat earth, round earth. Uh, I mean, yes, I see what the Bible says. I see some things. Yes, we could. But the Bible, you know, house, church, church building, this, that, you know, pants, skirts. Like, it's like when you make more of things than the Bible does, when you put an emphasis on things that God doesn't put the emphasis on, you're always going to end in error. You know what God's put emphasis on? Your heart. That's God's target. So I'm sharing these things with you, not to rile you up, have you go after somebody, just to show you how the Bible is talking about this long before a telescope is even around. Job 26, 7, look at this. Um, He stretcheth out the north over the empty place and hangeth the earth upon nothing. Before Isaac Newton discovered gravity, Hindus believed the earth rested on the backs of elephants who stood on the back of a turtle swimming in a great sea of milk. I'm not joking. Hindus believed, I'll say that again, the earth was resting on the back of elephants who stood on the back of a turtle who was swimming in a great endless sea. And you want to laugh at my Bible. That's talking about gravitational orbits long before Isaac Newton was even a thought on mommy and daddy's mind. Right? That was happening. Before the telescope, people thought the stars could be numbered. You know that? Listen to this. Around 2nd century B.C., 190 to 120 B.C., a Greek astronomer, you don't have to write this down, but just to kind of give you context, a Greek astronomer and mathematician, Hipparchus, said there were 1,026 stars. Good job, Hippo, right? 1,026, I don't know how he counted them, you know? He said, oh, somebody talked to him when he was up to 1,025, he had to start all over again. He said, come on, man, I'm trying to write this, I'm counting here. I'm counting here. Uh, 85 to 165 AD, the Greek Ptolemy, you know, was a Greek astro- uh, an Egyptian ast- astronomer. I'm sorry. He said, no, 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 Hipparchus. It's 1,056. He forgot to carry the one, right? 1,056 stars, all right? Johannes Kepler. You've heard of that name, maybe. A little more recent, 1571 to 1630 AD, German astronomer. Johannes Kepler said, nope, 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 nope. You guys went too far. 1,006 stars. All right, But in 1608, Galileo points his telescope at the heavens and realizes these guys were way off. <laughs> he looks at he focuses at the telescope and he says, whoa, there's a lot more than we thought. Today, scientists estimate between 100 billion and trillion galaxies with 100 billion to 10 trillion stars in each. Exactly, exactly. You just got to laugh. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. (laughs) One, two, three. (laughs) In fact, a study that was published in Nature said, no, there's more like 300 sextillion stars. That's a three followed by 23 zeros. Or take three trillion and multiply it by 100 billion. Right? That's like, again, those are numbers that even Congress can't fathom. They just you know, print the money. But anyway, uh, look at Jeremiah 33, right? Look at Jeremiah 33. I mean, you hear a word, a number like that, right? Uh, 300 sextillion. Like, there aren't that, you can't even fathom that number. Like, it's like beyond your comprehension. I can't even compare it to anything for you. It's too big of a number, too vast of a number. And what did God say long before Galileo? Long before anybody was singing about him, right? Long before the telescope, in Jeremiah 33, 22, the Bible says, I'm going to get there with you. Jeremiah 33, 22, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered, <laughs> neither the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the seed of David, my servant, and the Levites that minister unto me. 2,000 years Before Galileo's telescope, the Bible said, guys, you can't count the stars, right? Johannes, you're going to be, you're running out of fingers, (laughs) all right? 
Hippoparchus, whatever his nice name is, Hippo, Hipp, Hipparchus, you're running out of toes. There's too many. I, you can't number the host of heaven, right? Now let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1. Let's end here. 2 Peter 1 and then 2 Timothy 3. Some things to think about. Again, you could study these things out. You could find more examples just to edify yourself if you want. I'm just giving you a sampler here to just kind of titillate your mind, give you some confirmation of your faith. But 2 Peter 1, verse 20. Knowing this first, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The question comes up, did men write the Bible? Your answer needs to be yes. Did God write the Bible? Yes. You say, how can that be? Well, it's the same way that you write with a pen, right? Did, who wrote that on the board? Did the pen write that? Yeah. Did I write it? Yes. Did Peter write 1 Peter? Yes. Did God write 1 Peter? Yes. Peter was the pen that God picked up to write 1 Peter, right? I picked up this marker and wrote these things on the board. Did the marker write it? Yes. And the characteristics of the marker, of course, affected the writing because the black marker, so I got black writing. It's a little bit dry, so it's a little bit dry over here. You get the flavor of Peter and Isaiah, Malachi versus, you know, uh, Daniel. You get the coloring of the pen a little bit in the writing, but make no mistake, the hand guiding it all is the one inspiring the words, <laughs> right? So don't be, did men write the Bible? Yes. Did God write the Bible? Yes. They both are true. God guided men. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3. Verse 16. 2 Timothy 3, 16. All Scripture... I want you to see it. If you there, say Amen. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. So faces is a great thing to remember, to appreciate this verse and why everything we do is about the Bible. Why do we make so much about the Bible? Because they are the words of God. The Bible doesn't just contain the word of God. The Bible is the word of God. Right, there's a difference. We'll talk, start talking about that next time when we get into the King James Bible. I don't just wave this around and say this is the word of God and think somehow there's mistakes in it. No, this is the very words of God here. And so we make a big deal out of it. We work it into our street ministry. We work it into men's meetings. We work it into Sunday morning. We work it into Thursday night. We work it into ladies' meetings. We work it into discipleship. It's of everything we do comes from this because this is the seed that allows us to fulfill the mission. So when you doubt that or get somebody kind of filling your mind with the naysaying about it, remember faces to kind of just strengthen your faith and maybe help see, show somebody else why this book is all we make it out to be. Let's have a word of prayer and appreciate your attention. Lord, we love you today. We thank you. Just help us to, as we leave this place, not to leave your presence and not to forget all you've entrusted to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So just... Uh... Turn it off, Chris. But just... Uh...